those instances when Jesus is dealing with people that the church might, you know, define as sexual sinners, what is being displayed to those people is so, such a different posture and attitude than the one exhibited by the friends of our questioner here. Hey everybody, Mike here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. Uh, Vox, if you don't know, is Latin for voice. And uh, we believe Jesus is God's voice to the world. And, and uh, Jesus is ultimately the, the truest and surest revelation of what God is like um, and what God um, wants for the world. And so uh, we find, I find this Jesus still super compelling, even though there are parts of um, American Christianity that are less than compelling for sure. And, and there's a whole lot of us that are, are wrestling with things that... Um, are causing us to either question our faith or deconstruct our faith is a word that's thrown around a lot. Uh, but ultimately, I mean, the goal of the podcast is just to keep reveling in the beauty of Jesus, even though uh, there isn't, I think, one political position or one theological position that it has exclusive claim to him. Um, so I think that the, the interesting part about Jesus of Nazareth, of course, is how he would challenge all sides uh, of these big questions that we wrestle with. Um, I want to thank those of you that like, rate, and subscribe our podcast that helps us to, to be discoverable. Uh, thank you for those of you who support us on Patreon. That is a, a super big deal. Um, we've been able to, to hire, uh, my friend, Tim, who, uh, helps to edit the podcast, does some social media stuff. Um, it's working on, we're reorganizing the, the Patreon experience for loads of people. Um, so, so very, very grateful for stuff like that. I mean, seriously, this, I, we're, we're three and a half years in, I just can't believe it. Um, so I, what I want to do today is I want to hit the mailbag. We, we get, every time we introduce a new series of topics, uh, we get so much um, feedback and so many questions. And so we've started doing Facebook Q&A uh, live uh, Q&As on, uh, on Facebook uh, every other Monday night at 9 Eastern. I don't know if that's a good time. I don't know if that's a bad time. You can certainly watch it when it's not live. Uh, if you go to our um, Facebook Vox podcast uh, Facebook page, uh, that's where you can find those. And, and again, it's all an attempt to try to honor and, um, and to explore the many pieces of conversation, the many questions and pieces of feedback we get. And, uh, and so that, I, I think, is, is uh, just another way that we can be connected in conversation. So check that out. Uh, I've got an email here from um, uh, a friend who is getting her PhD in clinical psychology. And uh, several episodes ago, when we were in the topic of covering the topic of abortion, a uh, question came up about shaming people, you know, who are going into clinics. Um, is it worth shaming uh, 10 people if you save the life of one infant? And really great discussions out of that. Well, she wrote in, she said, I just listened to uh, your mailbag episode for abortion and you noted that you wanted to hear from a psychologist about the topic of shame, so I thought I would weigh in. I think the issue with understanding shame comes from the different meanings it holds for different cultures. To be shamed in an honor and shame society is about bringing shame to your family or your people. It's less about you. I'm adding this comment. It's less about you as an individual and more about the a reflection of the group 
in which you are a part of. Uh, to be shamed in an honor-shame society is bringing shame to your family or your people. It's about representing them poorly and failing to uphold the image of them. Thus, Jesus shaming the Pharisees is more about telling them they are failing to represent God well. On the other hand, in an individualist society like ours, shame is about us. Shame is telling someone that they are bad, not that they did something bad, that would be guilt. And shame in our society never leads to better outcomes. It may make them feel terrible for a decision they've made, but you've now told them that they are essentially a terrible person and that there's no coming back from that. Shame follows people for their entire life and often leads to worse behavior. Uh, for instance, more unwanted pregnancies because they seek self-validation for men instead of believing they're worthy inherently. I think the piece missing in your conversation about shame, uh, talking about, um, I, Bonnie and I had some comments about it, and then I think we did another, uh, another couple questions on it. I think the piece missing in your conversation about shame is, is often the women who go to get an abortion already experience feelings of shame. They already question their worth, and perhaps that's part of what got them into this situation to begin with. So with that line of thinking, shaming these women may not only cost them their lives, but the lives of future babies, the lives of those around the women. Oh, excuse me, I've read this very poorly. Um, so with this line of thinking, shaming these women may not only cost the, the lives of their babies, but the lives of future babies, the lives of those around them, the lives of their children, parenthesis, we know that trauma, mental illness is passed on uh, to future generations. If you work towards making women believe they are worthy of protecting, that they are loved and that society cares about them, they probably wouldn't feel the need, uh, to make the decision to begin with. So, um, so, so thank you for, for chiming in. I really appreciate, and, and I, and I do understand, um, completely the difference between, um, shame in an individualistic society and shame in a collectivist society. But I love the piece that, um, that, that women are already bringing shame into this conversation, that this, that this decision they're making could be one based out of shame already and that shaming them further would do nothing um, to help bring healing, restoration, uh, or anything good uh, to come out of, um, of their lives. So excellent, excellent feedback. Thank you for that. I'm going to save your email because I think uh, the way you word it is really, really helpful. Uh, another question. This is from a young lady who was in uh, a college group at Mariner's Church in uh, Irvine, California, years and years and years ago. We're all adults now, uh, which is so scary. And um, she she's just given birth to her fourth child, I think. So, wow. Um, this is a great question. All my life, I've been taught in church that the way to be saved is to pray the prayer. But the more I learn about Jesus and how he relates to people, the less that seems to be true. I'm wondering if you could explain how people in Jesus's time understood salvation and how we should understand, correctly understand it today. I've got a lot of competing thoughts in my head. Uh, and I, lo I love that. Um, 
Things like not being able to lose salvation, the parable of the four kinds of seed, God's heart for the lost and the desire that none should perish. Any help you can give would be much appreciated. So uh, would love your your thoughts on this too, gang. Uh, gang, uh, friends, love your thoughts on this too, friends. Uh, so, so immediately, so the question is, okay, how did people understand uh, salvation in Jesus's time? And uh, as, as best as I can tell, they understood salvation much differently than we understand salvation. They under they had an Exodus-shaped view of salvation. They would reenact Passover uh, every year. That a lot of the the promises in Isaiah uh, about the the salvation to come were Exodus-shaped, and they were echoes of the original Exodus. And that the the original Exodus was. Um, a, a holistic salvation in many respects. It was uh, liberation from slavery and from a foreign power. It was the, the, the plundering of Egypt and the carrying off of the wealth of the Egyptians. It was the, the God's presence among them in a tangible way through the cloud and the pillar. It was God's defense of his people through his miraculous powers against the gods of Egypt in the form of plagues. Um, so there were many aspects to it. It wasn't just a someday when you die kind of salvation, obviously. It was very much a, a, a here and now. Uh, and there were future aspects to it. Remember, the first, the first exodus held out the promise of a land and um, uh, with milk flowing with milk and honey and God's presence to be permanently uh, placed around them. So if you look at the New Testament themes around salvation, you'll see a lot of a lot of these similar themes uh, being uh, explored. John the Baptist, of course, um, invites people to repent uh, because of what's about to come when Jesus first shows up on the scene, his message is repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. And kingdom of God, of course, was not only a phrase that packed in new Exodus thinking, but also some of the promises given to David about the monarchy, that God would again become king over his people and that God's kingship over his people would lead to their rescue, their deliverance, their salvation, uh, would lead to their elevation um, and, um, and, and, and it was very much a, this world, uh, sort of understanding. There was also in the, the Jewish, uh, understanding of salvation at the time, a not yet, uh, picture of salvation. In other words, there was a yes, uh, when Messiah comes, um, the, the, the age, this current age will end evil and suffering will end with it. Death will be conquered. Um, and that, that what would be ushered in would be a future age, what was creatively called the age to come. And that that would be characterized by universal peace, the lion laying down with the lamb. And so there was a future aspect to it as well. So when we get to modern understandings of salvation, of course, uh, we, at least for those of us raised in kind of traditional evangelical homes, we were um, kind of, we were emphasized a gospel that was very much a then and there gospel. What happens when you die? And uh, of course, we're forgiven for our sin now, but that forgiveness achieves for us salvation when we are dead. There are and have been expressions of the gospel that are very, very much and almost exclusively here and now. 
some forms of liberation theology kind of fall into the that critique. Um, but the salvation that that Jesus talks about is very much a now and not yet, and we've talked about that um, in other podcasts. So there's a salvation that's now that Jesus is real now. He heals now. He's present now. He speaks now. Um, he guides and all of those sorts of things now, but there's a uh, fulfillment, a consummation that's waiting for us in the future. Now, that's how they would have understood, uh, and I'm oversimplifying, my goodness, uh, but, but that it's a general understanding of how they would under, have understood salvation. It was a political reality. It was a social reality. It was a um, an eternal reality, no question. Um, it was a physical reality. It was an emotional reality. It was a spiritual reality. I mean, it was very holistic, not surprising. So when we understand then how it is that we are saved, the New Testament is kind of interesting because in the Gospels, people are saved in all sorts of crazy ways, right? Um, here's uh, Zacchaeus who, you know, Jesus says, I must dine with you today. And Jesus, or Zacchaeus immediately says, well, you know, here and now I repent and I give, I give back to the poor. And I, if I've cheated out anybody out of wealth, I will pay them back up to four times. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this Man, today he is, you know, he is indeed a son of Abraham because the son of God has come to seek and save the lost. And it's this beautiful thing. Or you have a woman who uh, evidently was notoriously sinful, interrupts a dinner party, washes Jesus's feet. He says her sins are forgiven. You may go in peace. Shalom, of course, was the promise of the salvation that God had offered um, or the people that dug through a roof. Um, and, you know, lay somebody down in front of Jesus's feet, somebody that was paralyzed. He forgives the man's sins um, or the woman that um, touches the hem of Jesus's cloak in a, in a really cool acknowledgement that he was the Messiah. And she said and he says, you know, uh, you have been saved. Go in peace. So it's a very interesting and very broad and very wide entrance into the kingdom Um there, the, the, but the, the key line, I, I think, in, in most of those stories where, where Jesus commends somebody for their faith, um, and this line jumps out at me from, from when the paralyzed guys, you know, dig a hole in the roof and present Jesus or present the paralyzed guy uh, to Jesus. I don't know if I said that right. The paralyzed guy's friends dig a hole in the roof. I don't know if I said the paralyzed guy was digging. He was not. Uh, and the paralyzed man is set before Jesus. Jesus, it's the text says, when he saw their faith. Now, um, this word faith has become very much uh, a confused word. Um, I was raised to understand that faith was a private, subjective feeling of certitude in the reality of God and his gospel. I've since learned that, that there is a subjective internal element to it. But when it says that Jesus saw their faith, faith in the gospels is something you see. It's not something that's just held privately. So we don't have examples of someone praying a magic prayer. Um, although I'm sure when, um, like in the book of Acts, you know, somebody in their whole household comes to faith. Yes, they're baptized, but I imagine prayers, you know, part of that. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't see a denigration of that, of, of a prayer, but, but what happens when we so emphasize a, a private prayer in my heart, accepting Jesus into my heart 
is that we miss this aspect of faith, that faith is something you can see. So Jesus saw their faith. How? Well, they dug a hole through the roof. Jesus saw her faith. How? Well, she interrupted a dinner party and anointed his feet. Uh, Jesus saw her faith. How? She dug, you know, kind of weaved her way through a crowd and touched the hem of his cloak. Repentance for Jesus was something that was very tangible, right? For John the Baptist, it was go be baptized in the Jordan. Um, for Jesus, uh, repent and believe the good news. I mean, that was that was believing um, and trusting and acting as if the the big messianic promises in the Old Testament that were very much Exodus shaped and Davidically shaped were about to come true, and that you would rearrange your life accordingly, and that you could see that. So, so uh, I'm fine with a, a pray the prayer thing. But, but I think that too easily leads to a subjective understanding of faith. Because, you know, when, when uh, like John 3.16, For God so loves the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. All right, so the word believes, the word faith are related, means trust, confidence. Um, one scholar argues that the better translation is allegiance. Um, so, so can somebody say the pledge of allegiance and not really be allied to America? Well, of course, can somebody pray a prayer and not really give their heart to Jesus? Of course. Well, how do you know the difference? Well, you only, only on the basis of how they act, right? I can say that I love somebody, but if I treat them poorly, abuse them, embarrass them, um, I don't love them. And we, we all know if, if words and actions conflict, we always go with action. So to me, Loads of people claim to be Christians. Loads of people say they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but the Bible itself even makes the argument that, well, even demons acknowledge that, right? If all of that means is right theology, demons have actually the best theology in the gospel. So um, that's not the only part of what it means to have faith. So, so when I talk about having faith, the, the thing that I, the, the image that I come back to, and I haven't found a better one, is the idea of being married. Because it's a relational image that um, has a now and not yet part of that. Because when I'm, you know, I, I, and you, I think you were at our wedding, um, when, you know, when I stood up and I said, okay, Justina, this is, this is it, this is us, this is forever, right? There's very much a now and not yet part of that. The now part, of course, is I leave the church now as a husband. I walked in as a single guy and now I leave as a husband. Um, you know, there's this massive lifestyle change and relational change and all of these sorts of things happen and the covenant's forever, right? The promise is forever. And, um, and so, so for me, marriage isn't just that I wear a ring. Marriage isn't that I said a vow 20 years ago. Marriage is that I give my, my wife, my love, trust, allegiance today, um, not just 20 years ago when we first uttered the words. And so um, I, you're right to be suspicious that our view of salvation is too narrow and our view of faith is too narrow. And that often praying a prayer represents both of, the, both of those narrowings to the point where I think it misses what Jesus is getting at. And so that, that's why baptism becomes super important. Baptism, of course, doesn't save us, but baptism is kind of the wedding ceremony, if you will, of a follower of Christ. It's the public declaration that all other gods, all other idols, that I'm renouncing my former way of life, I'm embracing a new way of life with Christ at the center. And of course, 
this takes time and we don't do it perfectly, but it is very much a, my old life is done and my new life is here. And often when you pray the prayer that, that, you know, bit isn't super emphasized. So I hope I haven't over answered the question though. I certainly have that gift. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and, uh, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about it because it is, I mean, Paul says it is by grace. We've been saved through faith. And so, um, faith becomes, um, not only the winning of the mind, um, so that we're believing certain things to be true. Uh, but, but the believing that God is interested in has nothing to do with intellectual exercises. It has everything to do with the rearranging of life so that Jesus can be seen as Lord. So anyway, fantastic question. All right. Um, a couple more. Man, so good, guys. What a fun, fun um, thing I get to do. All right. My first question um, is, how do you live in community with Christians that you don't agree with? Uh, I, I feel like you've touched on this subject before, but was maybe hoping for a little more perspective. I am in a community group with friends that I love. And recently a girl in our group um, said she has a new friend who identifies as gay. Personally, my stance on LGBTQ topics is on the progressive side, but I have found that the majority of my friends do not hold this stance. Instead, my friend has expressed that she's excited to share the gospel with this other girl and wants to, quote, save his soul, excuse me, for this other guy, uh, and wants to save his soul from being eternally damned. But my friend does not know when to talk about him. Uh, <laughs> sorry, there's a lot of him and hers. Personally, let me go over that again. My stance on LGBT topic, LGBTQ topics on the progressive side, but I found that the majority of my friends in the group do not hold this stance. Instead, my friend who has the gay friend has expressed that she is excited to share the gospel with him and wants to save his soul from being eternally damned. But she does not know when to talk to him about this. Um, so-and-so, the girl who leads our group, has prompted my friend to share that, that uh, what Jesus thinks about gayness, but what does she really know about what Jesus thinks? Because sharing hard truths is an act of love. However, I piped in saying that that can only happen out of relationship and shouldn't be forced. Before that, I bring this up because this conversation brought anger to my heart because I believe the way they are approaching their gay friend is deeply flawed, and I'm not sure how to approach it. All right. So if, if my reading was, it was muddled, uh, I think the idea is this young lady is a part of a small group. There is somebody in the small group who has a friend who's just come out as gay. What should we do? How do we respond to this? The friend of the gay man is saying, well, I want to pray and save his soul from being eternally damned. The group seems to be, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking about this in a way that, um, seems, seems flawed to our questioner. So, uh, a couple of thoughts. I, I can't imagine we have, we have, a, um, I don't know how large, but a large, um, swath of folks, um, from the LGBTQ community who listen to the podcast. And I, and I can't imagine, um, how many times that those of those of our community have been talked about like this. So that's got to get pretty old. Um, and, 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 and so I, I, I come from a church background where this is how it would have been talked about and handled. 
and there's no absolutely zero uh, biblical warrant for treating somebody like this, right? If you look at how Jesus treated people, um, Jesus, and, and, and I'm still, you know, as, as gracious and inclusive as we want to be and see Jesus as like, there's some hard stuff in there. And I just had a phenomenal, oh my goodness. I had a phenomenal conversation with a young man who, who just said it so beautifully. And I'm, I'm literally either going to invite him on the podcast or I'm going to take, I took lots of notes, but he just said, you know, yeah, I'm a fan of Jesus, but there's just some stuff I ignore. <laughs> it's like, yep. Um, I, I understand that. Uh, because there, there is some stuff where, where it seems like Jesus's sexual ethic was pretty, pretty conservative. He was unbelievably progressive in how he loved people. And, uh, but he, he held, I think to the standard Jewish view of pornea, which was, you know, that, that the Genesis one and two ideal was what God intended. Now that's a huge discussion for another day, but, um, I bring that up to say that, that even in those instances when Jesus is dealing with people that the church might, you know, define as sexual sinners, what is being displayed to those people is su such a different posture and attitude than the one exhibited by the friends of our questioner here, right? There is, there is grace, there is table fellowship, there is mercy, there is understanding and compassion. There's not this, we have to save them from hell. Um, I mean, that whole approach will do nothing except drive this person further away. Jesus is not like that. Jesus does not sound like that, act like that, talk like that. Nope. When he confronts people, uh, you know, and we've talked about this so many times before, but he confronts the religious people about their self-righteousness. And so if Jesus were at the group, dare I suggest he may have a few words to say to us uh, about how it is that we're looking at another person. Because my suspicion is that there are other sexual sinners sitting in the room. And if those sexual sinners look at another sexual sinner and decide that that person's sexual sin is so much worse, uh, I think Jesus may have a thing to say uh, to those people who've made such a judgment. So um, I, I would simply, if I were you, uh, young lady, I would um, simply say, okay, well, let's talk about how Jesus, let's say for the sake of argument that this is wrong. All right, that that's any kind of sex, heterosexual, uh, homosexual, any kind of sexual activity outside of a, a one man, one woman covenant is wrong. All right. Uh, and I, I know let's just say that for the sake of debate, how we, let's go through the gospels and, and look at how Jesus treated people who fell short of that ideal. And then I think that changes the conversation uh, a little bit. And so if, if I were, you know, because because I, I I so sympathize with you on how this is being how this person's being talked about and discussed. Your question is well how do I handle those people that that don't agree? And obviously um, I love the fact that you've not given up on them and that you're not running away. I mean I just think one of the things that has happened in our church, it's, and it's a direct reflection of what's happening in our culture is, well, we, we don't even and won't even have conversations with people with whom we significantly disagree. And politics is the best example, right? I mean, you've got, you've got people um, being in the, in the church harshly judged for being Trump supporters 
or not Trump supporters or whatever. I mean, it's just absolutely insane. And lost in all of that is the way that we are to identify ourselves as brothers and sisters, first and foremost, of an entirely different polis, uh, citizens of a different kingdom. And yes, we have opinions and hallelujah for those opinions. But my goodness, those are not the most important questions to agree or disagree on. So uh, the first thing I do whenever I'm in a situation with people with whom I agree, and, and I'm almost always in that situation because... I know I'm wrong. I don't know. I just don't know how much I'm wrong or where exactly I'm wrong. Uh, and I also know that I simply am, and I and people get sick of hearing this, but I'm the biggest sinner in the room. I'm the one that needs the most grace. I'm the one that's the most flawed. I'm the one that's sitting there going, oh my goodness, I don't know any of these people, but I, I know my heart and I know what I've done. And so I instantly, when I'm tempted to judge other people, and that temptation happens regularly, um, have to come back to uh, my own conscience and my own walk with God and seeing how absolutely crazy uh, my life and heart is. And, uh, and, and then if I do see a speck of dust in someone else's eye, it's immediately followed by, listen, or immediately preceded by, listen, I've got this huge two by four in my own eye. I, uh, and, and so I'm able to recognize specks of wood in other people's eyes because I've wrestled with it. <laughs> right. So I'm able to see pride in other people because I have wrestled with pride. Um, I'm able to talk about sexual sin because I, well, I'm not, uh, not, this is the only thing that qualifies me, thankfully, but, but I, I can talk sympathetically about it because I've walked uh, a lot of that brokenness myself. Right. And so uh, if I'm, if I'm with Christians who disagree and, and you should be with Christians, if you're with Christians and they all agree and they all look at the world the same way on the progressive or the conservative side, man, that is, that's just not the way to live the flourishing Christian life. It is okay to be with people. And I think it's absolutely necessary for the growth of your faith and discipleship to Jesus to be around Christians who hold different views than you do. And that's one of the things I love so much about uh, doing podcasting is you're just out there and I get loads of pushback from people who see things differently. Some of it's great. Some of it's crap. Some of it is personal. Some of it's whatever. But I learn a lot and I grow a lot. And um, I, I just think your Twitter feed your uh, should should reflect. I mean, I follow... Uh, some unbelievably conservative commentators, and I follow the 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 most ridiculous left progressive folks, you know, equally on the uh, polar opposite side. I follow progressive Christians. I follow conservative Christians. I follow gay Christians. I follow um, I follow lots of African American voices, whether they're Christian or not. Lots of female voices. Um, and again, I, I don't know if you went through my Twitter feed and said, well, it's like 50% white male. I, I don't know. Cause I follow lots of Buckeye stuff. Okay. And Brown stuff and Star Wars stuff and Pearl Jam stuff and Muse stuff, but that's different story. But my point is, um, social media for me is one of the ways it's been super healthy is I'm consistently confronted when I open Twitter with views I don't agree with. And I have to wrestle through, how do you be gracious? How do you um, love the people behind those views? Because it's not just the views we're talking about here, right? It's experiences and it's stories and all sorts of things. So my first recommendation always is uh, it's a good thing to be around people uh, that you disagree with. The, the early church was full of people like this. Um, and and we, we wall ourselves off at our own peril, truly. 
Um, I practice the discipline of being the biggest sinner in the room. So if I were ever going to, to raise a concern up about somebody else, I would make sure A, that is done in the context of relationship, B, that is done with the acknowledgement that I have a log in my own eye about this. And, um, and then see that it is done with the goal of walking together. It's not just me sitting on a high horse saying, Hey, you need to take care of this. It's me like, yeah, it seems like we both need to, we, we both need work on this and, um, let's walk together in, in the midst of it. Um, when I'm dealing with folks that, you know, are, are very much set on LGBTQ issues, I always ask them, you know, what's the best argument for the other side? And if they're able to articulate that with empathy and compassion, I, I, my respect for their opinion grows. And if they're not able to, then, then okay. I don't really, they haven't really looked into it enough for me to take them seriously. Um, I am, I, I, on the, on the, the sitting around in, a, in the group dynamics, if you do anything in the group, I would go to the leader first um, and, and just say, hey, I'm uncomfortable with how we're talking about this. I think this would be a great avenue for study. And, uh, and, you know, and then I think the study would be, okay, let's say you're right. The homosexuality is prohibited in the Bible. Um, then how does, how, how would, based on the instances we have of Jesus dealing with sexual sins, how would he talk to them? How would he talk about them? How would he treat them? And it would be far different than uh, the way it's happening in the group. Now, dang it. I don't know if I answered the question, but, um, <laughs> I, you know, I do my best. I, I don't know. Again, you're not, I don't think you write in because you're expecting genius answers. I, I, I just think it's very, very interesting. Um, some of the conversations we get to have, and I want to honor those questions. Um, okay. Uh, let's try this one. And this will be our last one. Um, the subject line tithing 10% must go to the church. Uh, I'm a, uh, uh, high school youth, pa youth pastor. Um, uh, I'm new to pastoral, uh, ministry and church staff. It caught me off guard when the church said that the expectations of the staff is that we give 10% pretax to the church. Several staff members had questions about giving to parachurch ministries. And does it have to be 10% directly to the church? Some staff members, um, uh, let's see, some staff members have had meetings with pastors where they're asked, hey, we don't see you tithing. Are you tithing? To which they responded, I am tithing above and beyond 10%, but outside the church and or we do it via cash gifts to remain anonymous because they've been a part of churches in the past where promotions and raises were determined by who was and wasn't tithing or how much. Needless to say, it left a lot of us feeling uncomfortable. They had a lot of great points about leading by example. It's God's money. You can give it away to your church. Let's see. It's God's money. You can't give away to your church people what you aren't doing and the heart behind tithing. And let me be clear, I 100% believe in giving out of a generous heart back to God what's already his. I'm just struggling with the mandate to a staff to give 10% only to the church. It wasn't said straight out, but it was implied that advancement or future staffing would be made on whether or not we were writing checks. Awesome. So why, so in summary, why 10% why does it have to be tracked by the church? Why does it have to be exclusive, given exclusively to the church? What did you practice with your staffs when you were senior pastor? 
What did you do with Vox? What would you do now if you were me? Okay, man, great, great question. Um, we've talked about giving in past episodes. There is no biblically mandated 10% in the New Testament. When Paul is talking to Gentiles, he uses phrases like as much as you are able or as much as you are compelled to give. Um, he does encourage regular, joyous, uh, and I think progressive generosity, absolutely. But uh, it's certainly not. So so the church can't say this is a biblical requirement, the 10% pre-tax to the church organization. That, that is ridiculous that you cannot say it's a biblical requirement. Now, if you want to say, hey, that's the expectation of being on our staff. Okay. I mean, employers can make those expectations. But in that case, the church doesn't strike me as very healthy. We, of course, when I was uh, leading churches, we always wanted people to be so invested in the work that they would give their money. And absolutely, um, if if we're inviting, you would want your staff to model and embody what it is you're calling the church to. Um, but to to track those people, to have conversations with those people, uh, that's a bit who, too high control for me. And if someone's giving out of duty and obligation to keep their job, I mean, is that is that the kind of culture you want to create? I would w much rather create a culture where um, people are compelled and invested and interested and and um, it's not something you have to mandate. I get why some churches do it. I personally wouldn't be a part of a church that said you have to give 10 percent pre-tax income and we'll be checking. Um that's just, I don't think, I think that the organizational and institutional management um, of those sorts of spiritual disciplines um, wrecks the, the beauty of the spiritual discipline. And that doesn't mean, and, I, and I've certainly, you know, encouraged people to take staff time to serve or to whatever. Um, and, and there have been times and seasons we've tried saying, hey, take an hour of your week and go serve somewhere. Absolutely. Um, and, and so I'm not, I don't have a problem with an employer, in this case, a church mandating something for their staff. Um, I, if, if you just get any sense though, that like advancement <laughs> is somehow tied to this, I mean, flee, I'm sorry. Um, I don't know with Vox, I don't think the conversation ever came up much. Um, we had giving boxes, people gave online, um, I, I don't, I don't remember. I mean, Andy or, or somebody else could correct me, but I don't remember we ever had a conversation about that. So, um, certainly, um, and this, and, and see the big deal for me here is this is a symptom of a much bigger, um, conversational issue, which is the church has ceased being an incubator and a pointer and an expression of the kingdom, the church now exists for the self-preservation of its own institutional forms. And uh, man, when you go there, that's just a tough, there's no, there's no winning that whole game. Um, and, uh, and so I don't know the, 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 the four, I mean, and, and my wife's a teacher and they, you know, force the, to give union pledges um, as part of her paycheck. There's no, utterly no option. This is just what it means to be a teacher. And uh, so I get it and I get some of the arguments I'd hear in response, but I don't know. There's no biblical case to be made for this. And then secondly, um, it could be a symptom of something much more serious, in which case I would flee. I know that's easy for me to say. All right, my friends. 
There you go. Mike Erie sitting behind a desk doing his best to answer questions. I hope it's helpful in one way, shape or form or another. But but seriously, thank you. Thanks for investing in our community. Thank you for listening. Thank you for participating. It's just amazing what this has all turned into. So my friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give you peace. Thank you, brothers and sisters. Till next time.